This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are among us and you will never leave us. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to hear you and your word to us. We need you and we long for you. And we ask that we would meet you. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We're continuing this morning in our uh, walking through 2 Corinthians. And so um, I'm going to start with a story uh, about tents. Uh, so my husband, Jonathan, and I used to be uh, pretty hardcore about camping in college. Uh, he was a wilderness first responder, which I always thought was super cool. So he could give you a tracheotomy in the middle of the woods if he had to. And um, I just spent a lot of time in the Appalachian Mountains. And um, I, I was, uh, my major was communications with an emphasis of, in critical media studies. But um, if you ask me my real major, it was my campus ministry with an emphasis in camping. Um, that was pretty much how I spent those four years. So uh, we spent a lot of time outside. And uh, now we hardly ever stay in a tent. It's been decades, or at least a decade, since we've stayed in a tent. Uh, and we don't even own one anymore. So what happened? Uh, well, first, there was we got tangled up in a lightning storm in Kansas. Uh, but we persevered, sort of. We got a hotel through that. And then um, we kept our tent. And then uh, we one day, in, uh, we decided to, during seminary, we went with our friend, uh, her name's Summer, to Maine. And we'd never been before. We went to Acadia uh, National Park, which is beautiful. And we spent the night in a tent uh, on this, kind of in this town next to it, in this little campsite. And we, it, that night, it rained all during the night. And I don't know if we didn't set up our ground tent right or if there was a hole in it. We couldn't really remember. But this is what I remember. I remember waking up. And it was about, it was with first light, which by the way in Maine is about 5 a.m. in the spring. And before I opened my eyes, my first thought was, I'm soaking wet. And I kind of rolled over and there was sort of a splash. Uh, because all the water had drained into sort of my corner of the tent. And I was just in this puddle. And I was soaking wet. And for the rest of the day, it felt like I never got dry. And Maine's still pretty cold in early spring. And I was freezing. I'm a Texas girl. So it felt like my bones were cold. Like it got in me, the cold. So... Anyway, we came home after that. I got on dry clothes, and we gave away our tent. We just gave it to friends. We, that was the last time we were in a tent, and we haven't been since. So I bring this up this morning because this morning's passage is about tents and about the groaning that happens in tents. And 
I think uh, when we think of tents, we can think of like good times around a campfire and North Face and the sort of, you know, Patagonia models that always look really happy to be outside and their hair is perfect, even though they're camping. And, uh, but in Paul's day, when he's talking and writing about tents, tents were rather miserable places to be. And the experience of those people in tents was not pleasant. And there were folks even at the time who lived in tents. That wasn't uncommon at the time to live in tents for a season or forever. And Paul, remember, was a tent maker. And he apparently made, you know, a decent living doing it. Uh, So there were always people looking for tents, needing tents. And verse 2 and 3 of the passage this morning in Corinthians says, for in, for in 2 Corinthians, it says, For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Life is hard. This passage tells us that. It doesn't just hint at that. It tells us that. I think it's easy for us who um, can, who live in the United States, who with money and privilege and a fair amount of power, can kind of shelter ourselves from the pain of life. And for, for short amounts of time, sometimes we can trick ourselves into believing that life is supposed to be really satisfying all the time and really happy. And there's a whole industry in advertising to convince you that if your life isn't happy, that you're doing it wrong. And if you just bought this product or took this trip or had this experience or went on a particular diet or had this kind of particular like Mountain Dew or type of beer, that life will be okay, that life will be satisfying and exciting. But the scriptures disabuse us of any notion that our lives are guaranteed to be comfortable or that we're entitled to that. And this is really hard for me because I'm pretty addicted to comfortable and have cultivated that addiction over time. But tents are not comfortable. And if your life this morning, if you're coming in feeling like life is ill-fitting or unsatisfying or uncomfortable right now, or burdensome even, or full of grief, you are not alone. Paul is writing as someone who knows how you feel, and many, many believers throughout history know how you feel. Things are hard here on earth. Things are not the way they are supposed to be. And when Paul talks about this tent that is our earthly home that will be destroyed, he's speaking about our bodies, our physical bodies. And fascinatingly, Paul says, For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, or some translations we heard this morning says, not that we would be naked, not that we long to be naked, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. It's one of my favorite phrases of the scripture. What does he mean, not that we would be unclothed? It's uncomfortable to live in a body. Things don't work right. We get sick. Things fall apart. We have limitations and needs, constant needs. And everyone in this room, from the smallest little baby to the oldest person among us, 
bears the curse of the fall in our bodies. We experience that in our cells, in our muscles, in our teeth, in our eyes. We bear this curse of the fall of sin, of death in our bodies. And we experience even that things are not the way they're meant to be. We experience that reality in our bodies. Even the kids that came up this morning experienced that reality. And Paul says this morning, he reminds us that our hope is not that we will leave those bodies. Things are not the way they're meant to be, but our hope is not that we will somehow be disembodied and leave our body altogether. And maybe that seems obvious to you. Now, it seems obvious to me when we confess the resurrection of the dead and the Nicene Creed, we're talking about the resurrection of the body, of a body. But um, I was an adult, I'll just admit, I was an adult before I came to think of heaven as something earthy, as an earthy kind of place with bodies in it. The picture that I grew up with that I thought of heaven was this place kind of far removed from the earth that we sort of zoom off to when we die, and then there's harps and clouds that we kind of float on in a disembodied way. It sounds quite boring. I don't play the harp. Um, so <laughs> but that, that was sort of my picture of heaven. And then and uh, if you look on the Internet, as I do too often, and um, even now in certain books, you'll find this published in books, there's the C.S. Lewis quote ascribed to C.S. Lewis. And it says, um, you do not have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. And really prominent Christian leaders, who I won't quote, but you would know their names, have tweeted this out and quoted it in their books approvingly. But there's a couple problems with this quote. The first one is C.S. Lewis never said it. So don't believe everything you read on the internet. And people have gone back and looked at everything he's written and every lecture he gave, and there is no evidence that he ever said this quote. And he, I don't think he would say it. And the reason is, is because he knew better. Because you do not have a soul, you are a soul, you have a body, implies that what's really important, what really matters is our soul. And that our body is just this kind of earth suit, this empty shell, that our bodies um, are kind of temporary soul carriers, and that one day we will be free from the burden of our body, and that's our goal. But Paul says, no, we are not going to be disembodied. We are going to receive a permanent body. This morning, you are not a soul trapped in a body. And Jesus did not come to redeem your soul so that you could be freed from your body. You are body and soul. And if you are in Christ, Jesus redeemed both your body and your soul. C.S. Lewis, by the way, in God in the Dock, called the body and soul an organic unity. See, he knew better. That's Christian anthropology, that the body and soul are entwined, that they are in organic unity. When I was soaking wet in Maine with our ridiculous tent, it would not have helped me to be free of the tent. 
if there was no building to go to. It wouldn't have helped me to escape my tent and then just be rained on, right? I needed something sturdier. And that's what Paul's saying. In the same way, being free of our body is certainly not our goal. It's not our telos as humans. If we lose our bodies without getting a new body, somehow in death we would become diminished. We would become less human. We would become less alive. We need not just to be free of our tents, but to somehow be more embodied, more alive, more human. And Paul is kind of grabbing metaphors here. You can, I can almost feel it as a writer. He's clearly trying to articulate something mysterious beyond words. And so he grabs this metaphor of clothing, that we need to put on even more clothing, to be clothed in something more. N.T. Wright tells us that the Christian hope is not being disembodied, but being re-embodied, to be clothed again in a body. And when you die, your body will become dust. We, we remember this together every Ash Wednesday. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. And what will that be like? to be dust, to be without a body, to be away from the body, as Paul says. I don't know. I don't know. Scripture says very little about that state. All we know is that he tells us in verse 8 that we will be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So there's hope in that. Paul's saying you don't have to be afraid. You'll be with the Lord. You'll be with Jesus. But then there will be heaven. After that, there will be heaven. And heaven doesn't just mean the place we go when we die, but it means heaven is the reality of God's restoration of all things. Heaven in scripture is not a place kind of far away from earth that we sort of jet, get a jetpack and go to, but the place of God's reign, God's perfect reign and majesty and it won't be that this earthy world with pear trees and inchworms and cinnamon rolls that I had in my break in the Ohio River and acoustic guitars and brass bands that all of that will disappear and we'll get something new and unrecognizable. Instead heaven, the place of God's perfect Rain will be established permanently with a new earth. Heaven and earth will merge together, so to speak. They will consummate. They will become one. And again, N.T. Wright tells us heaven is not the place we go to when we die, but rather the place where God has our future bodies already in store for us. That is good news. Heaven is going to crash into earth. And if you are in Christ, you'll be woken up. Get up. It's time to get up. And you'll get a new body. You'll put on clothing of a new body. And maybe even before your eyes, you will smell something again that smells sweet like incense. And if you're, if you're allergic to incense, you won't be allergic to it there. It's time to get up. 
and you'll be in a new body. So what will our resurrected bodies be like? We don't really know. We don't know exactly. We have a taste of it in, the resurre- in Jesus' resurrection, but we don't know precisely. Will I be good at sports, finally, as I've always wanted to be? I don't know. I hope so. I hope I'll be able to run without, like, hating everyone like I do now. (laughs) But we know from the resurrection of Jesus that our bodies will be different, and yet they'll be recognizable as who we are. They'll be eating and drinking and earthy bodies that make fish with our friends. Jesus does that after the resurrection. And our bodies will look different, but we will still have race and ethnicity. They'll still be We'll still have bodies that are black or white or Middle Eastern or Korean or Polish bodies. And that's part of the glory. That's part of the glory that we will look all different. Our bodies will look different, but they will be whole. We will be whole and we will be beautiful. So why does this matter? This is a point of doctrine, but why does it matter that we'll be clothed that we'll escape these tents, but not for something less substantial, but more substantial somehow, more human, more alive. It matters for a lot of reasons, and there's books written on this that um, are worth reading and worth your time, but I'll just draw out three quickly this morning. First, this matters that our bodies will rise again I hope because it's a comfort to us in our own deaths and the deaths of those that we love. Philip Larkin, a famous poet, he wrote a poem called Obad, and he describes in it his fear and hatred of death. And um, I'm just going to read part of it because he describes it, uh, I think, really accurately for many people. He calls death that sure extinction that we travel to and shall be lost in always. Not to be here, not to be anywhere, and soon nothing more terrible, nothing more true. This is a special way of being afraid. No trick dispels. Religion used to try that vast moth-eaten musical brocade created to pretend we never die. And specious stuff that says no rational being can fear a thing it will not feel. Not seeing that this is what we fear. No sight, no sound, no touch or taste or smell. Nothing to think with, nothing to love or link with. The anesthetic from which none come round. One of the reasons that I'm a Christian, among many, is that in Christianity I'm allowed to hate death. I don't have to be happy about it. I don't have to be neutral about it. I don't have to pretend that I, you know, am thrilled to be assumed by some vague universal spirit or to, you know, live on in the way that the grain waves in the wind or that I live on in people's memories. I really love life. I love the sound of rain and I love the feel of skin and I love the taste of chocolate. And we are not here this morning to pretend, as Philip Larkin says, that we will never die. 
That's not what we're doing here. We will die. And Paul is telling us that though we're okay, it's okay that we are absent from the body because we're at home with the Lord, that we don't have to pretend that we're okay with disembodiment. Disembodiment is a loss, that it is an anesthetic, as Larkin says. We believe that God entered fully into that place that anesthetic place of death. He took on what Larkin says is nothing more terrible, nothing more true. He took on death in a real and definite and material body. God himself took on death in a body. So that when we rise... We are not rising to an existence without sight or sound or touch or taste or smell, but to a new and embodied existence where we will experience everything that is good in life, where everything that can be tasted or smelled or felt or touched or heard will remain. Nothing will be lost that is good and that is lovely. In Isaiah 25, it echoes some of the words in this passage in 2 Corinthians. It prophesies that God himself, it says, will swallow up death forever. God in Jesus entered a body. He moved into this leaky tent of a body. God became mortal and was swallowed up by death in order that Paul tells us in this passage, we who are mortal might be swallowed up by life. He swallowed death so that we in our bodies who are mortal can be swallowed up by life. It's Father's Day, and Jonathan, my husband, and I have both lost our dads. And there is so much hope that when I see my father again, he will have a body, and I'll be able to touch him and smell him again (laughs) and hug him. Last time I saw his body, he was so sick. But he will be made whole, not just in his soul, but in his body. There is hope in that. So, comfort. But also, why does it matter? The resurrection of the body affirms the goodness of bodies and of materiality, not just after death, but here and now. Bodies are good now because they're eternal. The first heresy that we bump up against in the New Testament, and it doesn't die, it keeps coming round, is Gnosticism. Gnostics believed that Jesus wasn't quite fully human. He appeared to have a body, a human body, but God, they said, couldn't really take on human materiality with all our appetites and taste and smells and sounds. Gnostics think that human bodies are kind of icky. And... That, of course, God, therefore, couldn't take on a real human body. That the point is of spirituality is to somehow transcend our bodies to this pure spiritual state. And you hear that, right? You hear that reflected in that fake C.S. Lewis quote that's so popular. 
The idea is that our bodies are these kind of unfortunate and unholy things that we carry around with us that our souls are trapped in for a while, but that's not the gospel. Our bodies are sinful. They are fallen. That's true. And we bear the curse. We bear sin in our bodies. Just like our souls are fallen. But our bodies and souls, this material world even, are very good. They are called very good. Um, I write about this a whole chapter, so I don't think I've ever quoted my book before, but if you'll indulge me, um, this is from Liturgy the Ordinary. I say, it's no wonder that one of the first heresies passionately opposed by the apostles was Gnosticism, which would shun the embodied life in order to embrace a higher, truer spiritual reality. In Gnosticism, teeth brushing and shower taking and nail clipping and hair brushing and eating and drinking and sleeping and everything else in the body, by the way, would simply be burdensome hindrances in the way of the soul's pure engagement with the spiritual life. But in Christ, these bodily tasks are a response to God's creative goodness. These teeth we brush, this body we bathe, these nails we clip are made by a loving creator who does not reject the human body but declared us holistically to be very good and who shockingly took on flesh in order to redeem us in our bodies and in so doing redeems embodiment itself. So lastly, the resurrection of the body not only affirms the goodness of our body, but the eternal weight of our bodies. It affirms that what we do in our bodies matters, and matters eternally. Uh, It's worth um, pointing out that uh, this last verse, verse 10 It talks about there will be a judgment as to how we use our bodies. That we'll give an account of what we do with our body. And when I read things like that, my first question is, what about grace? If we're saved by grace, what's this judgment we're talking about? Don't we believe in justification by faith? So yes, Unequivocally, we do, we believe in justification by faith. We are saved by grace alone. And you are not saved, you can't earn salvation by the way you use your body. And yet, grace is not moral indifference. We care about the way we use our bodies as Christians. But the biblical call to embodied morality, to sexual purity, or to moderation with food or alcohol, isn't because we think bodies are icky or dirty. It's not because we think that enjoying pleasure in your body is somehow wrong and we're very prudish and a little nervous when anyone actually uses their body for anything fun. That's not why we have morals and ethics around our bodies as Christians. It's because we believe bodies are part of worship. And that the way we use our bodies, including how we use our bodies this morning, is how we will worship. We believe our bodies and souls are inseparable and we will worship with our bodies eternally. So therefore, what we do with our body and what we do with our soul are inseparably entwined. 
So we do believe in grace, and we believe in salvation by grace alone. But grace is not the same as moral indifference. Grace transforms the way we use our bodies. In fact, grace affirms the goodness of the body. So if this is a place you struggle with the way that you use your body, call out to God for grace. Call out to God this morning for mercy and for help. And he will be sure to give it. He will be sure to give grace. How do I know he will be sure to give you grace? Because God himself came in a body to show us what God is like. He is our hope. And he entered fully into this embodied life. He who was in perfect bliss, in a state that we can barely imagine, came and lived in a tent, an uncomfortable tent, to redeem us, to give grace to us in our bodies, to give us, as Paul tells us, a house not made with human hands. You cannot make your salvation with human hands this morning. Your hands are not strong enough but you can receive the house that Jesus is making for you, that Jesus has made for you, and that is waiting for you, the body that is waiting for you even now in heaven, that is waiting for you even this morning in heaven. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.